plan the same things that God has planned in his, um, what we might call, interruptions of our lives. We're living this life, and all of a sudden, he just kind of interrupts us in such a way as to make us kind of really re-navigate the, the decisions we make and the things we do. Sometimes it's comfortable, and sometimes it's difficult. And uh, so as you're turning to, to, uh, to, to Revelation 19, I uh, just want a little update on this little party that we're having at our house. And, um, literally, I'm not exaggerating here, I find myself doing a memorial service almost every week right now. And in, that, in those services, a lot of times they're not believers who, are, who have passed away, not believers who are there, a lot of them down at the water. Well, anyways, I've taken it upon myself to, uh, to invite a bunch of those people to our party, just so you know who might be there. So um, I, it's funny, because I look out, and sometimes I will introduce you to you jokingly, because you've both been at our church for 15 years or something, and I'm like, hey, Dan, you know, Frank. And then I all of a sudden realize that you guys haven't met. I'm like, you've been sitting at like 11 feet apart, you know. But at the same time, you know, the church radically has changed over the last few years. I look out, and there are people who I don't know as well as I have in the past. And I think that we should get to know one another. And anyways, I'm saying this because we should get to know one another. And um, when it gets right down to it, at this little gathering we're going to have at our house, and I hope everybody has an enjoyable time, but there will be also be a ministerial opportunity, because some of the people that I, who, when I do a memorial service, and I invite them to church, eh, they're not real comfortable, but they might go to a party. <laughs> and so you get the idea, the connection there. All right, I've already used two minutes of my sermon time talking. We're in Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read three verses that we covered a little bit last week just to get a running start on this very dramatic passage of Scripture. I've named this sermon, The Armies in Heaven. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Hear now the word of God. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with a brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, the intensity of these words almost throws us back as we seek to examine what your message here is. What do we learn, Father, of you? What do we learn of your call in our lives? We do pray, Father, that we would grasp 
the wonder of this. But not just, Father, as those who are part of, a, of an audience, but those who are, in fact, participants, that we've been called, Father, to this great and noble and mighty and wondrous task. So help us, Father, to look intently into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a far less controversial and difficult book, written by the same author, John, is 1 John. I don't know about you, I really like 1 John. If it's Beacon Light, I almost always preach on 1 John. It's a very brief book, you know, it's five chapters long, and it contains a theme of sound doctrine. It's in 1 John, the only place in the Bible where we read about the Antichrists. So it's this call to, to endure sound doctrine. It's a call to obedience, to obey the law of God. It's a call to love one another. It's kind of synonymous with obedience, but it, he really focuses on the love that we are to have one for another. But sprinkled throughout those wonderful admonitions is something that we actually read of with great regularity in the Revelation. You realize that when John wrote the Revelation, he wasn't writing it completely independently from the other things that he would write. I mean, he's the same author. He's got the same convictions in terms of of ministry. And one of the things that we read in 1 John that we see with regularity in the Revelation is this call to be an overcomer. If you have followed me in this series, you know that that's come up a lot. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, we read in the Revelation, but we see the same word in 1 John. Perhaps many of you are most familiar with it in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, where we read, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We see it right there numerous times in just a couple of verses. So certain, by the way, is this victory, this overcoming, that John, if you noticed, writes it as if it's already done, as if it's complete. Yet at the same time, we are in the midst of a battle where we're called to overcome. And I was vexed by that, and so, you know, I had to kind of do some research, and I think, as per usual, John Calvin said it pretty well when he wrote, this passage is remarkable. For though Satan continually repeats his dreadful and horrible onsets, yet the Spirit of God, declaring that we are far beyond reach of danger, removes fear and animates us to fight with courage. So this this declaration of this great victory should not cause us to lethargy. It should bring us to fight. If one, by the way, does not believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, at least for that person, the battle is lost before it even begins. There's no winning the battle apart from faith in Christ. But the believer here is announced to be an overcomer. And no doubt, if I were to ask you, well, where does that battle believe? What do you have to overcome first? I would say that the battle begins with the corruption of our own nature. The battle starts here in my own heart, my own mind, the overcoming of my own sinful desires and flesh. It begins with the the lusts of the flesh and extends to to overcoming, if you will, the craft of Satan. In short, The battle begins with whatever would lead us away from faithfulness. Whatever leads us away from Christ. That is where the heart of the battle is. But the question before us this morning, in a passage like this Revelation 19, 11 through 21, broadly speaking, is this. What is the product of this overcoming of which John writes? Where does this go? What does it accomplish? How big is this overcoming 
of what does it consist? What's the mechanism behind this overcoming? And what is our role in it? Even as I wrote that, I thought, I don't know how clear this is, so I'm going to ask it a different way. For what purpose has God saved us? Is it merely my individual piety and welfare? Do, Do I come to church for me? And it begins with me and it ends with me. Or is there something bigger? Do Do I have a task for which I am being prepared? What are my marching orders? Is there a a moment where we, like Isaiah, say, here am I, send me? Or do we just stay there? Going into this chapter, we might ask, what is God doing in history? And at what level am I commissioned to participate in what God is doing in the course of history? After all, when we read this passage, maybe you noticed that Jesus is not the only one in the passage that is on a white horse. I mean, there's something unique about him, no doubt, in the passage, but you know, I don't know if you noticed. He's on a white horse, but there are others who are on white horses as well. Well, let me just tell you, and I'm not looking for a fight. You know, like, but I did a memorial service a couple of weeks ago for an old roommate of mine, a volleyball player, who was kind of a pugnacious guy. You know, he was the kind of guy that would get in fights. And uh, I go, you know, Rick, man, what's the deal? He goes, well, I'm not looking for trouble. But I'm not running from it either. <laughs> I admired that a little bit, right? I think we have to have that disposition. If it, Paul writes, if possible, be at peace with all men. But it kind of implied in that is there are times when maybe it's not possible. All right, so let's cause a little trouble. <clears throat> because it is here where the disagreements reach a fever pitch in terms of what is God doing in history? What is this passage all about? He's coming out of heaven on a white horse. What is that? What's being accomplished? All right, so let me go to the extreme, one end or the other. On one end of this spectrum, there are those who view, they consign this entire chapter to the final day of history. This is the last day of history. It's, you know, the the rapture is about to happen, and this is it. The victorious status of the one on the white horse, of which, by the way, the scriptures speak a lot. This idea that when God is going to send his son, it's going to change the world. I mean, I put in the sermon notes about a half a dozen passages. I could have put 50 passages in terms of the impact that one Messiah is going to have upon the world. Think about... Think about Abraham kind of going, well, what's going to happen as a result of this promise that you've made to me? And God marches him outside and he says, look at the stars and count them if you can, because that's going to be the number of your offspring. And we learn in Galatians that the offspring of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ. Same thing with the the sand. You can't number it. So you've got these promises all through the Bible of the amazing impact that the promised one is going to have upon the world. But the popular view today, by the way, in case you don't know, relegates all of that, all of those wonderful promises, to that which happens after the second coming. That these things that are going to happen as a result of the gospel don't happen until after Jesus comes again. Just so you understand, just so you get an idea of kind of the way this is being read by the majority of people, not historically, but today. Chapter 19 is Judgment Day. It's the Battle of Armageddon. And chapter 20, as we'll get to, you know, soon, is this millennium that takes place 
after Jesus actually comes again. All right, you get the picture here? That this chapter, according to the popular view, this is the last day of history, the church is raptured, the millennium then begins in chapter 20 with the personal presence of Christ who has already come. All right, maybe, maybe even right there, I know this is a hard concept for people to get. You can ask me about it during Q&A, but let me just state this, and this is the point I want to make, that, that the view that dominates our culture is that until that happens, until that second coming takes place, we should expect the Christian faith to be, at least in some, if not many or most respects, a dismal failure. All right, now, you may think, Pastor Paul, you're overstating the issue. The failure, isn't that kind of a strong term? To put the word failure in the same line as Christianity, it seems like counterintuitive at least. And yet, the failure of Christianity is the title of a chart on page 77 and a half of Clarence Larkin's longstanding and famous book on dispensationalism. The book was written in 1918. It's still in print. Okay, so it's not some obscure book. You can go buy it at a Christian bookstore. You can go on Amazon and get it to this very day. And as you go through it, the book is full of charts, as people tend to, who get into end times, like to make charts. And it's right across the top, blazing across, the failure of Christianity. And this is what he writes. I'm going to do a little reading here, so you're going to have to read with me and Well, I'll read out loud. You read silently. This is not a congregational reading. He writes this. It is evident that there are more than 100 times as many persons born into the world each year as there are persons newborn. By that he means like born again. And that thus far Christianity as a world-converting power is a failure. All of which proves that if after 1,900 years of gospel preaching the world is not converted, it is not God's purpose to convert the world by the preaching of the gospel in this age, but simply to gather out an elect body, the church. The millennial age will be the dispensation of the Spirit. Then righteousness shall cover the earth as the waters cover the deep. You get what's going on here. Don't expect success until after the second coming. Now, notwithstanding the dubious statistics here, you know, that, you know, there are a hundred more, hundred times more people born than newborn. Here's, here we have a classic example of people using extra biblical dubious statistics to re- kind of evaluate the, what the Bible is teaching. I think it's very doubtful that there are a hundred times more people being born than born again. And the dubious logic of that, when he says, thus it proves. But leaving that for now, the conclusion is devastating. The conclusion that it is not God's purpose to convert the world by the preaching of the gospel prior to the second coming. That is not what we're called to do. Now, I'm going to tell you, I mean, I hope that you guys are discerning enough students to kind of recognize that this does not seem to comport. I mean, I think just at face value, it collides with the words of Christ himself in John 3.17, you know, following the most famous verse, right? John 3.16. John writes, for God, this is Jesus talking, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's the purpose of Christ to save the world. Now, we can get into what that means or what that looks like specifically, but I I don't think we can separate that from what the promise was that was given to Abraham. 
there's going to be a, a, a worldwide effect of the gospel of Christ. And it is very much the purpose of God to convert the world. In that John 3 passage, there's no mention at all of the second coming. He doesn't say, when I come again, we're going to do this. No. Now, most of you have probably never heard of Clarence Larkin. If you go to our church, you've heard of him. So you might think, and again, I want, I want everybody in this room to be, I don't want you to be like a critical in a negative way, but I want you to be critical in a good way. I want you to be examine and study and question. I want us to be that kind of student. Don't just take it, right? You've got to read it and go, yeah, this seems to be what the Bible is teaching. So I, if you're like me, I might go, well, you know, Pastor Paul, you've picked one very obscure theological figure to build an eschatological straw man. I mean, you, Clarence Larkin, he's, no, who believes that? You know, you picked this one guy a hundred years ago who wrote this one line. So let's get a little more contemporary here, just so you understand the environment in which you live in terms of the view of what God is doing in history. And I, just so you understand what I'm, what I'm saying when I say that, what is God doing in history is, to me, synonymous with what is God doing eschatologically. Okay, what's the direction? The founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. Google Dallas Theological Seminary. It's probably the most influential seminary right now in America. And it probably has been for a long time. It is number one. One of the seminaries I went to was called Dallas West because we believed very similarly, similarly to that seminary. The founder is a guy named Lewis Berry Chafer. And he wrote this. <clears throat> Another error to be avoided in connection with this subject, this, the subject of eschatology, what is God doing in history and so forth, is the supposition that the divine purpose in this age is the conversion of the world. You see what? The, it's an error. He's saying it's an error that it's God's divine purpose to convert the world. It is true that the world will be converted and that there is yet to be a kingdom of righteousness in the earth, but according to the Bible, that day of a transformed earth so far from being the result of Christian service is said to follow rather than precede the return of Christ and is said to be made possible only by his personal presence and immediate power. You see that again? It's not our job to convert the world. It's when Jesus comes again. He's got to be here. I don't think I'm overstating the issue to conclude that according to these very popular yet modern views, the gospel is insufficient to produce all that the scriptures teach will be accomplished by Christ. I know, I know for me, when I held this view that I'm disagreeing with right now, I remember that was what was going on in my head. What was going on in my head is, well, the Bible says some really good things are going to happen, and there's no way that's going to happen until Jesus comes again and straightens everybody out. And I'm no charismatic, but if I were, I would say God spoke to me and said to me, why do you think my gospel and my spirit are insufficient to accomplish everything that is associated with the coming of the Messiah? I had a small view of the power of the gospel. I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's not going to do it. He needs to come back and make it happen. He has to come again and finish work that has been left undone. Well, again, I think this appears to be in conflict, not only with the fact that you never read that in Scripture, but I think it's in conflict with what we read in Hebrews about when Jesus comes again. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is currently reigning, and Paul is not unclear. Matter of fact, the most quoted verse in the Old Testament from the end of the New Testament, Psalm 110, for he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Paul's argument is he is currently reigning and he will continue to reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, and the last one being death. And Paul makes that argument with no reference to any of this happening after the second coming. It's a result of the gospel. Jesus is not going to come and deal with sin. When Jesus comes again, it's judgment day. It's the end of history. All right. I am... disagree with the view I just read. So, Pastor Paul, what do you think? So I'm going to contrast this with the view of, and I'll use the word renowned. I guess I'm revealing my bias here. Renowned Princeton seminarian Benjamin B. Warfield. How many of you have ever heard of B.B. Warfield? All right. Now, I'm not going to mention Warfield to canonize him. I don't think, you know, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I don't believe that he's a, you know, a saint or what have you in that kind of Roman view of sainthood. I'm mentioning Warfield that we might at least understand the view of great theologians at arguably richer theological times in history. You know, Princeton was a great seminary at one time. I also mention Warfield here because for some reason people think You know, I've lived in this community all my life, and I hear people, they'll come up to me and they'll be like, well, Pastor Paul, do you believe in the second coming? Do you even believe in the second coming? Well, yeah. Like, I know that I'm being misunderstood by people who aren't listening to the sermons, <laughs> and they think that I'm make, making stuff up. So I'm, I'm mentioning it for a couple of reasons. One is, because Warfield is pretty solid. Secondly, so you understand that I'm not making stuff up. That this is the position of the Puritans. I would argue it's the position of the Reformers. It's going to be, as you're going to read, going to be, I'm going to read a long thing here, but it's Warfield's position. And what I'm about to read, we have the Bonson Conference coming up here. And uh, just so you understand, that Greg, Dr. Greg Bonson made a comment about what I'm about to read. He said this was... Now, this is a little different than what we're talking about because the position I was just sharing about everything getting worse and worse, that's the premillennial dispensational position. Great Dr. Bonson was an all-millennialist, and, you know, and I, I know those are tough terms, and maybe I can explain it to you. But he said this passage from Warfield is what I think the term he used cured him of his all-millennialism. And he, made him, and he's a, he became a post-millennial. Let me, let me see if I can... It's not in the notes, so it's going to get very scary here. <laughs> Let me see if I can explain this vast eschatological millennial thing in about 90 seconds. Because, you know, you'll hear me say premillennial. By the way, the prefix is this idea of when is the second coming happen. Premillennial means the second coming is before the millennium. The millennium is the reign of Christ. That's when we I just talked about. Jesus will come then there'll be the millennium. Post-millennial is that the millennium, the reign of Christ happens, and then Jesus comes at the end. And all millennialism is post-millennialism <laughs> because they believe it's at the end also. But they, they don't have, say, as optimistic of a view of what God is going to do in the world in terms of every nook and cranny. All right, So let me see if I can explain it this way. The premillennialists, and I do believe they're Christians, I'm not, I don't think they're not Christians, they're in a boat that is headed west, but they're facing east. And, and they're paddling west, but they're convinced that the boat is going to fall off of the earth on the east side. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse, you know, as the pastors drive their Lexus to their churches. 
2007. <laughs> it's going to get worse. But, you know, we should go ahead and paddle anyway, you know, even though we're, this is in terms of a, uh, of a, a global converting, transforming power, it's, it's not going to work out. Right? The all-millennialist, their boat is just kind of floating around especially the two kingdom all millennialists, right? They, they're like going, look at, let's just pull the oars in and we're all on a swivel and we're just kind of going wherever the tide takes us, God's got the tide in control. We don't worry too much about paddling and the hardcore two kingdom guys, which we'll be talking about in our Bonson conference, their focus is let's just worry about what's going on in the boat. Let's just look at the boat. And don't worry about, and let's get some people into this boat and so forth. The post-millennial is going, no, the boat is headed west. God wants it to go west. It's a battleship, and we need to get our oars in the water, and that's the direction we need to go. Now, let me just say this, in case you're thinking, well, wow, Pastor Paul, I guess you have a pretty high opinion of yourself. <laughs> I don't, I'm not assigning to the fact that the fact that I'm, as a post-millennialist, more excellent at rowing than my premillennial friends who are looking in the wrong direction but rowing harder than I am. But I do think it's important for us to understand that God has a plan for history, and we are to take part in that plan for history. As I said earlier, Jesus is not the only one on a white horse. What's going to happen in history? This is a fairly long quote, so I'll try to read it in such a way as to keep us on board. But this is Warfield's statement about chapter 19. He writes, the section opens with a vision of the victory of the word of God, the king of kings and lord of lords over all his enemies. We see him come forth from heaven, girt for war, followed by the armies of heaven. The birds of the air are summoned to the feast of corpses that shall be prepared for them. The armies of the enemy, the beasts and the kings of the earth are gathered against him and are totally destroyed. And all the birds are filled with their flesh. It is a vivid picture of a complete victory, an entire conquest that we have here. And all the imagery of war and battle is employed to give it life. This is a symbol. The thing symbolized is obviously the complete victory of the Son of God over all the hosts of wickedness. Only a single hint of this signification is afforded by the language of the description, but that is enough. On two occasions, we are carefully told that the sword by which the victory is won proceeds out of the mouth of the conqueror. We are not to think, as we read, of any literal war or manual fighting, therefore. The conquest is wrought by the spoken word, in short, by the preaching of the gospel. You see how that's so opposite? In fine... We have before us here a picture of the victorious career of the gospel of Christ in the world. All the imagery of the dread battle and its hideous details are but to give us the impression of the completeness of the victory. Christ's gospel is to conquer the earth. He is to overcome all his enemies. This is, of course, nothing new. There's, of course, nothing new in this. Remember, I've said this many times. It's not like the Revelation is giving some new, different message. The victory of the gospel was predicted over and over again, even in Old Testament times, under the figure of spiritual conquest. What we have here, in effect, is a picture of the whole period between the first and second advents. Right? You get this? Not after the second advent. It is the period between... Christmas and the end of history. It is the period of the advancing victory of the Son of God over the world, emphasizing in harmony with its place at the end of the book, the completeness of the victory. It is the 11th chapter of Romans. You know, all Israel will be saved. And the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that's where we see, see he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet in symbolical form. So those passages, what Warfield is saying, those passages 
he must reign, all Israel will be saved, is demonstrated in this chapter in a very dramatic form. And there's nothing in it that was not already in them. It's not a new message, except that perhaps the completeness of the triumph of the gospel is possibly somewhat more emphasized here. I agree with what he's saying. I think that is the message of Scripture. I think any child in Sunday school, if you said to any child and said, hey, do you think that the world will be a worse place, a better place, or unaffected by Jesus? If they didn't read eschatology books, every one of them would say, better. And if that wasn't enough of a quote, I got two more. Shorter. Chilton says this, and he will reign forever and ever. We must not concede to the enemy even one square inch of ground in heaven or on earth. Christ and his army are riding forth, conquering and to conquer. And Kuiper says it, finally, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Let me tell you, and you've heard it, I know you've heard it, there is a very popular practice among our brothers and sisters in Christ to offer what I call a wincing praise to God when we see evil triumph because it marks that the end is near. And I think that is an unhealthy obsession. This little thing where we're like, oh, I know that I know things are getting really, really bad, but you know what? It's a sign that Jesus is coming again. It's going to happen. You know, it's almost like we've got this little twisted, unhealthy refrain going on, rather than finding ourselves animated to fight with courage, as Calvin wrote. We're called to fight with courage even in battles where it seems like we have no chance. Friends, you gotta, you got to think long game here. I mean, so many people go, well, Pastor Paul, how can you think? Did you not see the election results? How can you be a post-millennialist? You're missing the point. It's the long game. It's human history. We may be, by the way, in the very infancy of the church. History might go on and on and on. All right, let's just do a real quick survey of this. These verses. What we see here in verses 11 through 21 is the fulfillment of our Savior's great promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And this is very dramatically presented with the opening of heaven and his riding on a white horse. So when Jesus in the Great Commission says, you know, go make disciples of all nations, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, this is a picture of that. It's a picture of him coming out of heaven on a white horse. And by the way, the white horse is a horse that they rode after the battle was won. It was symbolic of victory. And he's described in this passage in a very similar manner to what we saw in chapter 1. So John is not going some completely different place. So this, that picture, right, in chapter 1 of you know, the eye is like sun and a sword coming out of his mouth. And th- that picture is the picture that John kind of really associates us with here in chapter 19. And I just want to remind you of this. That of all the beasts and all the monsters that John beheld in this entire book, and some of them were very, very scary, there was only one vision that made John fall as dead. And that was the vision of the glorified Christ. And let us not lose the fact that if anything we want to get out of our gathering together, it is an elevated understanding of the glory of God. The only blood mentioned in this chapter, by the way, it's a very graphic chapter, right? Birds eating flesh and all this stuff. But the only blood mentioned in this chapter, other than the avenged blood of the, of the martyrs, is where? It's the blood upon the robe of Christ. We are to ever be reminded that the great victory is a victory 
purchased, ransomed by the death and resurrection of Christ, which we know as we read here, which is the Word of God. It's the reason that the prime directive for every church is word and sacrament. I was talking to a buddy down at the beach this last week, and we have a mutual friend who's kind of like, a, you know, he says he believes, but he doesn't want to go to church. You know, we're t- you know, and the friend had some real disastrous stuff happen in his life. And I've known these guys for 40 years, right? And I'm like, going, well, what are, you, what, what are you guys doing? He goes, well, he comes to my house, and we pray, and... You know, he's, my buddy is trying to minister to this other guy, but this other guy won't go to church. And my buddy, who's a great guy, by the way, does, he didn't understand the magnitude of what this friend of ours is leaving out of his life. Because what he's missing in terms of his own sanctification, of his own grasping of the unfathomable comfort of God, what he's missing is word and sacrament. Like, we, we live in an era where that's become dispensable. If you're in a small group, if you're reading your Bible, if you're praying, are those things good? Yes. Are they great? Yes. But it's not word and sacrament. You, if you want to read church history, people were put to death. Why? Because of their view of the sacraments. Because of their understanding of what those things were. And we have kind of put them in a closet. But here we have it. The blood on the robe And he is the word of God, right there, word and sacraments. And then we have the armies of heaven. Let me tell you who I think that is. I think it's you, and I think it's me. It may seem odd that the armies of heaven are Christians, until we recall that from a heavenly perspective, that is precisely where we are. We are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ, Paul writes. And you're like, well, wow, that's a pretty ethereal concept, right? But when we gather together, even as a church, where are we going? We have come, the author of Hebrews writes, to the assembly of the firstborn of those who are enrolled in heaven. We are worshiping not just with us, but this cloud of witnesses who are with us. Out of the mouth of Christ, we see a sword. And that sword is like a two-pronged implement. It brings the message of redemption, right? The Word of God is the sword. But it also is the means by which He rules the nations with the rod of iron, Psalm 2. What we have here in this passage is this two-pronged battle, this battle on two fronts where the Lord deposes evil, and advances the truth. He's doing both. The curse of the covenant, by the way, includes this idea of birds. And if you read Deuteronomy 28 and verses 26 and 49, you have this idea that the birds are coming. It's a picture, right, of where the vultures gather. You know, we read that even in the New Testament. It's this picture of the utter vanquishing of evil. Matter of fact, some people say it's almost like a cleansing. You know, the, the birds just come and all of that stuff is just taken away and there's this cleansing that takes place. Friends, what we have to understand, what we learn from a passage like this is that there is a vicious hostility between those who rule the earth viewing themselves as the ultimate oracles of the hope of man. It's a vicious battle between them and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This idea of peacefully coexisting is not the way the Bible presents the battle. It presents it as a battle, as a war. And the weapons of this warfare are things like love and truth and faithfulness. It's it's not, you know, don't get me wrong, you know. We're not called to lock and load. I'm not a pacifist, but what I'm saying, that's not what this is talking about, right? The sword is the word of God. But those who would seek our hearts will not easily give that away. They want it, and they will fight to keep it. 
but something very unique about that, that one on the white horse whose robe is dipped in blood is that he, unlike all the other potentates who've ever existed on this planet, purchased you and purchased me with his own blood and grants us true wisdom and holiness. It's so, he, you know, when Jesus says this, we, we say it, I say it a lot, and I, every time I say it, though, I'm like, this doesn't seem to fit. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That's not the way earthly kings, earthly politicians, that's not the way they operate. They want us to serve them. Jesus said, no, I've come to serve you. Now let me just get... Let me just clarify something here just in case we want to view Jesus as our celestial butler. Those of you who've raised children know this, that you spent your whole life when they were little serving them. But the moment they thought they were in charge, we had to have a discussion. right? Because Jesus is serving us, but you know what? He chooses how he's going to serve us. We don't, we don't make that choice. Now, in the current text here, the beast and the false prophet are likely Nero and the emperor cult. But you have to understand this. This great commission continues throughout history, and anytime we find ourselves in a similar situation throughout the course of history, we know that our God is doing similar things, deposing evil and advancing the truth. And finally, those who are killed with the sword in verse 21, I would argue are those who have lost their lives by finding it in Christ Jesus, right? Jesus teaches that you need to take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life will find it. You and I, if we believe, we've been killed by that sword and we have a new life in Christ. So let me, let me just finish up going, well, what, Pastor Paul, how do, what's your application here? How does this speak to, to me? How does this speak to us? Well, maybe I can finish with an anecdote. To this very day, I still coach. And the owner of the club that I coach for, who, by the way, is Duncan Avery, who we pray for his, we pray for his kids. He lost his little girl and his little boys, really. But he owns the club. You know, he, he played for me and Tommy, this phenomenal guy. And he owns this club, and he has a real concern in terms of the development of the players in his club. He's like, I want my... If you're going to be in this club... I'm going to advance you in every conceivable way. You're going to become the best version of yourself. You're going to become the best volleyball player. You're going to become a good person. Like it's, that's very important to him. And he's convinced of this. He's convinced that the venue for the development of those players occurs, occurs first and foremost with them in the game. Coach, you've got to get them in the game. As a matter of fact, he has a rule that you can't leave them on the bench. Sometimes it's a hard rule to keep, right? I mean, You're like going, okay, i got to get these kids in because he's like going, they're going to learn how to play better if they're in the game. Because when you get in the game, your weak spots become very apparent, not only to you, but to everybody else. Sound doctrine, obedience, love, those are merely ethereal concepts apart from our practice of them. We could talk all about it, driving home from the, in the van at 3 o'clock in the morning, what love is and what obedience is and all that. But it, is, it really gets down to, are we, in fact, looking at the Word of God intently, with, in, with the intentions of doing something? I have to say, I found seminary. When I went, to, I went to a bunch of different seminaries, and I went after I was a pastor... I found seminary intriguing and engaging because I was already in the ministry and I was utilizing things that I was learning in seminary that very week. I mean, you know, you understand? It's kind of like the other guys who were just going, I got to get my degree in order for me to find a job. How do I get the best grade? I was in seminary going, 
how do, I, how do I take what I'm learning right now and bring it into the lives of the people in our church? It made it much more kind of applicable to me because I was engaged already in the ministry, which, by the way, might not be a bad model for those who want to be in the ministry. But if you want to grow in personal piety, if you really want to become a loving, obedient, faithful person, you may need to just engage. Sometimes you have to put your toe in the water in order to stem the tide. I mean, we see both, right? We see in the Red Sea, we see God just kind of going, I'll split it and you walk. But we see in Joshua going, God going, you need to stand in that water. And once you stand in the water, then I'll stem the tide. But if you don't stand in the water, you're going to be on the shore for a long time. Where do we fight? Everywhere. First, within our own hearts. In every place that our feet touch, as those in fine linen, white and clean, and on white horses, I don't know if you ever think of yourself that way, on a white horse, following Christ, we are to ever proclaim that there is only one on a white horse wearing a robe dipped in blood. And that is what Paul says we proclaim every time we go to the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize your plan for history. We read in Lamentations that Israel fell astonishingly because they did not consider their future. May we recognize, Father, your plan for history and our role in it and help us to be faithful in that capacity. Help us to understand the sin that dwells within us and the sin by which we are surrounded. And may we be bold and truthful, proclaiming that which you've called us to proclaim. In Jesus' name, amen.